Iowa County, November 1840. Two teenage brothers, homeless, hungry, and cold, are walking at night along the old Military Ridge Road. In search of a place to warm up, they stop at McKillop's Saloon, one of the many seedy establishments along the trail. But it's a stop the brothers would soon regret. Inside, with the usual crowd of miners, drifters, prostitutes, and gamblers, the brothers become entangled in a brawl. The brute violence of the area takes hold, as one brother is burned alive, while the other is found frozen outside. But the brothers have not gone quietly, as their spirits have returned to form one of the most frightening legends in Wisconsin lore. The Ridgeway Phantom. Welcome to Badger Bazaar. A murder investigation would lead police to the farmhouse of Ed Gein. Mass murder at Frank Lloyd Wright's Spring Green Estate, Taliesin. Now authorities believe the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, Thank you, everybody, for tuning in to this episode 28 of Badger Bazaar. I am your host, Scott Whitman, along with me, your other host, your Mickey Sanders. How you doing, Mick? I'm great. How are you? Uh, we got to have two people doing this. I guess. Just Otherwise, works, you're just, just talking to yourself. Want to thank everybody for coming out a couple weeks ago to the Cheyenne Valley Settlers Heritage Association for the event there that we had. I was there doing a talk about my book and selling my book, Finding Dairyland. Great turnout. Um, as we did last year, it was wonderful to see everybody hear their stories about dairy farming in Wisconsin and the loss of dairy farming in Wisconsin and talk a little Badger Bazaar as well. It's always fun. People actually come over there and talk about the podcast. I hear all kinds of stories of uh, ghost towns out in the southwestern Wisconsin, including Cheyenne Valley. So, really? Even yeah. just talking about your book? That's, yeah. I mean, the, the, the two intermingle then. That's... Very yeah, cool. it works. Uh, it works. Works out well. Yeah, so, it's almost like you know what you're doing. Yeah, I, you know, I've been at this a, a little while now. So I'm not going to tell anybody this. So, yeah. So it works. It's, it was bound to happen. Somewhat. eventually. Nobody, nobody ran me out of town. Nobody. There was no hook from the side stage to take they me didn't off. Didn't throw so. eggs at you. Yeah, we worked out all right. That's so, uh, but want to thank everybody for coming out and uh, for the hospitality. It was a great Saturday out there. We had beautiful weather, and I was there all day. So it was a great time, and we'll do it again next year. Also, as we have spoken numerous times before, Mickey and I are going to be coming up now in a few weeks at the Great Lakes Paranormal Conference in Glen Beulah, Wisconsin, September 22nd, 23rd, and 24th. 
quite the event that we're having out there. The first annual Great Lakes Paranormal Conference put on by Haunted Midwest Tours and Craig Naring, who does uh, wonderful work. Uh, so we're looking forward to that. Great list of speakers coming out there. Dave Schrader, Jeff Belanger, uh, Shane Pittman, you name it. Adam Berry, number of people from the uh, paranormal pop culture world. So really looking forward to that. Tickets are still available. If you want to head on out there, you can go to greatlakesparanormalconference.com. And the two sexy guys from this podcast will be there in person. We will be there in person. I don't know about the first part of that statement. We will be we there are guys. in person. We are I can guarantee guys. that. We're guys. I don't we care how guys. people identify nowadays. We're guys. <laughs> we are guys. Oh, the sexy part. Yeah, you're probably right. Right. A couple of things that we want to hit on here. One, hopefully we can put a put a bow on a case that we've followed for and and a long what a time present now. it has been. Right. right. What a gift. From the New York Post a couple of weeks ago. Taylor Shabusiness gives sick description of allegedly dismembering, sexually abusing lover's Does body. Does she give any other kind of description? Right, right. So, uh, as you all know, hopefully by now, Taylor Shabusiness did have her trial. Um, several, hopefully, hopefully not by now, several, maybe. Several weeks ago, and it actually, with all the sensationalism around it and with everything covering this, I thought they were going to milk that thing. Court TV's there. I mean, right. I thought they were going to milk this thing for, for a long time. Right. Two days. They almost couldn't. Right. I mean, the jury right. turned around so quick they couldn't. I mean, the cow was literally running away as it was dying with no udders left because it, it was just an open and shut case. Like, it, it shouldn't surprise you. It should have been. Some pretty evil antics from her, too, kind of laughing at descriptions and laughing at the judge and actually making, what do you want, pistol six noises. feet? Yeah, yeah, pistol she, noises at the judge. She's a, I mean, she's she a piece is of work. personification of psychopath. So this, this I don't think we're going to have to talk about her too much longer after this. But, I, I you know, if you're not fully aware of the things that she does or did, uh, this... Article, won't be doing anymore, hopefully. This article goes into a little bit more detail than what we've spoken about in the past. So uh, if you have children with you right now, put your fingers in their ears and, and Earmuffs. turn up Taylor Swift or something. <laughs> so from the New York Post. From one Taylor to another, that makes sense. The Wisconsin woman accused of decapitating her lover during a meth-fueled escapade gave a sick description to investigators of how she dismembered him and sexually abused his corpse at the same time. Her trial heard... On Wednesday, obviously, this was written during her trial. Taylor Shabusiness, 25, offered up disturbing details in a filmed interrogation soon after she allegedly choked her 25-year-old boyfriend, Shad Therian, to death with a dog collar in February 2022. Quote, I was sucking and cutting at the same time, unquote. Shabusiness said in the video, which was played to the jury during Wednesday's proceedings, I liked it, she continued. I didn't know what to do business who could be seen laughing at various points throughout the interrogation added that her lover's head was allegedly the first thing i took off and she was quote very excited about abusing his corpse she's not on meth anymore and she's still having these responses that tells you the psych cycle right you can take out the psych- meth fueled right the psych- psychopathy is all that is driving this, like you said, the meth, meth has nothing to do with it. Green Bay Police Department Detective David Groff, who was among those who interviewed Shibusiness, business, testified Wednesday that the alleged killer had copped to initially choking her boyfriend as foreplay, but she, quote, enjoyed it, unquote, and wanted to see what would happen. Shibusiness then allegedly confessed to cuddling her boyfriend's headless corpse in the wake of the grisly slaying. Quote, she described how she had sexual contact with the body, in terms of playing with his penis, 
Also, she described that she had a dildo that she placed into his mouth and that she had also cuddled the body, unquote. Into his mouth that's been severed from the rest of his body. Prosecutors have said Shabiznis used the dog collar to strangle Therian at the Green Bay home he shared with his mother before she sexually abused him and then dismembered his body with kitchen knives. Therian's severed head and penis were later found by his mom in a bucket in the basement of their home jurors previously heard once again along the lines of jeffrey dahmer her hero i can't stop getting the willies as you talk about this and i'm sick and twisted so this is another level of psychopathy she was found guilty in no time flat <laughs> spared like, uh what, literally a couple hours right that took one hour and one right. hour for Not the e- yeah less than an hour now that you say that yeah so pretty much the only thing left now is to determine whether she is whether she's insane or not I don't know how you can say somebody like this is, to tell you the truth. I don't... How she's, I don't, how you, how she's crazy? How she's not. Right. And that, that the problem is, do you rehab somebody who's this far gone? No, she'll never get out wherever she goes. No, but I mean, does she take up prison space, which they're always... They never have enough room in the prisons, and that's been going on since you know the 60s. But where else do they put her? You're not rehabbing her because she's not coming back, and we don't have capital punishment. It pretty much is just, it's, does she live out her days in prison somewhere or does she live out her days in, in uh, Winnebago, rehab, Winnebago right. or Mendota or wherever they would uh, decide to put her? So um, good riddance to Taylor. Yeah. She business. Sad, sad story. Next thing to be making some news over the last couple of weeks, obviously I'm sure a lot of you have heard of the kind of UAP hearings that was in front of Congress a few weeks ago and where actually somebody said, testified in front of Congress, saying that we are in possession of non-human entities, meaning aliens. So this article here says, UAP hearings shines new spotlight on Wisconsin's self-proclaimed UFO capitals. And that's what Mickey and I have talked about in the past, is there's three small towns in Wisconsin, all of whom call themselves the UFO capital of Wisconsin just like or, or the, America? I or think of the world, they say. Of the but world. Just like I, I, in Florida alone, there's three of the world's largest flea market. I don't know how that can happen more than once, but <laughs> apparently people don't realize that those kind of superlatives are only meant to, you know, be declared for one. But apparently there's three ufo capitals of the world in this tiny little state alone and that's what we're talking about the three small towns are, are named bellevue elmwood and dundee which we talked about that's the one we just talked yeah about, which you know. we talked about in our kettle moraine state kettle moraine episode now this article says planning for the annual ufo celebration began thursday in this small central wisconsin town of bellevue about 2,500. One day earlier, Wisconsin congressman led a House subcommittee hearing in which whistleblowers claimed, claimed the United States military has been withholding evidence of encounters with spacecraft, almost certainly from another planet, and perhaps proof of some of those unidentified anomalous phenomena known as UAPs or UFOs were piloted by non-humans. So Bellevue has a yearly UFO parade, as Dundee used to have a yearly UFO uh, festival UFO days, which has uh, ended now in the last couple years. Since Benton has so, passed. Right. So it's probably the one thing we are known for most is the UFO Day Parade, Nathan Perry, administrator of the Bellevue School District, said. The UFO Day celebration dating all the way back to the sighting in 1987. A police officer on an overnight patrol was atop a hill 
between Bellevue, which straddles the Dane and Green County lines, and New Glarus. In the distance, the officer noticed a large, mysterious object in the air. He radioed a description, a description to dispatch, which passed the officer's report along to O'Hare International Airport, which at the time was the closest airport with a radar that is still being monitored at 2 a.m. O'Hare confirmed there was something. It was not in the flight plan, and so it was officially described as an unidentified flying object. News of the report quickly spread around town, and locals began their own late-night searches. And seven days later, the same thing in the same place happened again. That's eerie. Elmwood's UFO days are happening this weekend. Amy Beckel, the Elmwood Community Club president and planner of the annual event, says Elmwood's most famous encounter was in 1975, and it also involved a police officer. In that reported incident, the officer investigated what he thought was a big fire in the sky, then noted it was actually a large, bright object. And then in in Dundee, they had UFO days at Benson's Hideaway Tavern, as what we just said we had talked about in the Kettle Moraine episode two episodes ago. And it was an annual gathering for UFO believers until Benson's death in 2021. Um, Benson's Hideaway is not open anymore, and there's, from what I understand, there's no long-term plan in place there. Now, Glenn Grothman, who is the U.S. congressman from that area, chaired the subcommittee hearing in which three former military personnel claimed the Department of Defense should release more of the classified documents it has on UAPs. In one exchange that raised eyebrows, former intelligence officer David Grush said the military had recovered non-human biologics from one UAP. Quote, he was, maybe, and I'll say it bluntly, the least credible of the three witnesses, Grothman said. Grothman said he was skeptical all around of the idea that the military was su- successfully suppressing proof of alien life form visiting Earth. Quote, I think it would be hard to keep that thing secret. If somebody really did come across a crashed spacecraft and they found people in it, I would think almost immediately dozens, if not hundreds of people in the military would know about it. Unquote. At a public hearing Friday in Madison, Governor Tony Evers was asked if he believed aliens had visited Earth. Tony Evers only said no. That's shocking. <laughs> Grothman said he found the other witnesses' descriptions of personal encounters with UAPs to be more credible, but added he wasn't yet ready to issue any subpoenas to compel officials to testify on the subject. Now, do you believe that more military people would know if that existed? I do. I would think that really? a, a whole shit ton of military. The, the level of security and, and clearance, these guys have come out since Area 51 right. became, came to exist. They they talk about not many, a handful of people knowing, but not everybody else. At least the full level of knowledge that I'm talking about. I, I don't believe that tons of military people would know about it if it existed. Well, they're not even military people. They're scientists and people in the scientific community that they brought in, apparently, supposedly. You, you think to there'd work be a with. lot Look at of people, people, people like Bob Lazar, who's, I mean, he doesn't have right. a military That's background. kind of who I was talking about sure. when it came to Area 50. But he also had, like, the highest level of security and, and clearance because he was the one re- de-engineering a lot of this stuff or whatever. But that doesn't mean there's a lot of people involved well, look at, in look that at, process. Look at this guy that just testified who said that we had non-human entities. He was just an, an intelligence guy. Oh, he wasn't. He wasn't a military. Yeah. I mean, he wasn't any. I mean, I think Grothman is right here. I, I think how how do you keep that 
as secret well, as, they, as, much as they people have, talk, especially write. about something like this. I don't know how that would be possible either. Now, but but I've also been come to understand that when it comes to this top secret kind of stuff, if you're working for the military or for the government, if nothing else, they only discuss it amongst other people of the same level of clearance. They're not going around and telling their wife or their friends or anything like that. Is that? I mean, that's correct, right? How I know you, people how talk. How do you not? Because. Because things happen to people who say too much, and that's where I'll leave that. I'm not talking about the mob, but I'm talking about mob-type things. People are convinced to shut the hell up when when powerful agencies want them to shut the hell up. You know, and, and Bob Lazar have... Uh, why did it take him and, so long to come and, out? And why we, we, you know, we talk about the name Bob Lazar. Bob Lazar is a, is a scientist who has come out in recent years and said that he had worked, long since retiring he had worked in area in 51. area 51 and and on on all this you see him on ancient aliens and scientific other shows. stuff that we we don't have on earth that they have but why did it take him that, so long to come out with this information well, and, and if he, he says, wasn't convinced to shut the and hell up he has evidence that the government has been trying to kind of erase him right like, erase his like he went to school at cal berkeley and cal berkeley re- re- refuses to acknowledge that the he government was a will there. find so, a way to sure. make you scared sure i I, I, do, I believe that i do agree with that but i also agree with growthman here that that I, I don't know how you have as many of these guys working on this thing as you have this is over 70 years you know since you know when roswell happened 47 that's a eighty years. That's a long time, right? And a lot, of, like you said, a lot of people retire and suddenly have the courage to do it, which I don't understand. The government's still going to come after them if they're really afraid, but maybe because the government has been more willing to offer this information, and I think there's so much more to it. That's my opinion. I, I do believe that the government has a stranglehold on this information as far as you know, in, igniting fear in people and and not wanting to get out to some degree to help us and protect us from ourselves. To some degree, because they like having that power or they need that power, whatever it is, that that's a whole other conversation. But I, to some degree, I think there's a lot more people who know about it than I'm admitting to. But I also believe maybe they're all shutting up for a certain reason. I agree. I I understand what you're saying. I get that. And you know, the point is this though: as I just read an article from CBS talking about hearings in front of Congress about non-human entities and a governor of a state responding to a question of if we've had contact with aliens. This would have never been written 10 years ago. Oh, not even five 10 years, years ago. Right. So there's a reason we, that this is happening. We, we, that, and that's what I keep saying. We've evolved to the point where we can start having these conversations without people risking their lives or being called crazy and everybody just you know, going nuts. I think we're starting to accept this more as part of our culture, part of, of, the, of our bloodline, whatever the right way is to say it, that aliens exist i think people are accepting that more and so it's not as crazy to talk about so you're not risking your life if you have military clearance or government clearance you're not risking your life if you do and i've stated before i'm very skeptical of the fact that, that we if we as humans have had any contact at all with that other, doesn't mean you don't think our, they exist you just sure. don't know that we've had contact right. right but there's also what has been happening in the last five years with the government opening this stuff up and having hearings in front of Congress about this, this would have never, like I said, this would have not have happened just not many years ago. You know. So, so, so does that so change I, your mind at all about interaction? I think them? the government has an agenda here, and I'm not sure what it is. I don't know if it's 
yes, we're coming out with information gradually, so people, and we're going to do it slowly, so people are are ready for the bang that's going to happen, and you know, whenever years from now, or if it's intentional disinformation, which I to throw us off track. Yes. What are you speculating as far as that? I don't know exactly what you're saying. Well, we have we have full departments based in disinformation. We send out disinformation about everything. Wait, wait, but are you saying that's because they know so much more than than they're letting on? No, no. I think they're they're using it to hide other things. Oh, other things that they're doing that we would all be up in arms about. Maybe um, it, it might be. No, just, that, I mean that's a good speculation. It might be just to throw off a news cycle, you know, or I mean, just to cover their butts going forward. Yes. Yeah. Like, so we might need this to cover our butts later on when we do something bad. Right. Yeah, so, right. you know, what it's is our the government. what is the answer here? No who knows. And again, there's a this guy that just spoke in front of Congress and Grothman who was on the committee has come out and said he wasn't credible. So, and you know what happens when you lie in front of Congress? A lot can happen to you. You know, but I'm you, saying if you have the stats or the money, you can get away with it. Yeah, well, this guy didn't. He's just an intelligence guy. Right, that's true. You know, so is, is and he... I'm not cynical at all. Is he sticking his neck out and lying to Congress about aliens being around? Why? Right. Why, why would some? Why would he do that? Why For, does he what's, stand to gain from that? Right. Yeah. Right. Right, so... I, I see both sides of it's this. It's an interesting conversation, exactly. I see I see the side that says yes, the government's about to come and come out with information, and they're preparing us for it. And I see the side that says no, this is all hogwash. So, who knows? So, Mineral Point, a lead mining region, We're talking west of Madison here. Love Mineral Point. Last time I spent any time there, a few years ago. You ever been there? I thought you were being sarcastic. Oh, no, Not I that love... we ever do that. No, I haven't spent a significant amount of time in Mineral Point, to be really? honest. No. I, lo- I love Mineral Point. We, you really do. Yeah, last time we were there, it was a few years ago, Vicky and I went to see... Uh, so we went to see a couple of bands at the Mineral Point Opera House, which is... No kidding. Beautifully 115-ish year old... Uh, fully restored opera house. It's great. Um, and we saw a band called the Pines there, which, uh, they're a Minneapolis band. Well, they're all, they're all from, they're all from Iowa, but they're, I guess, musically they're based in Minneapolis and they're kind of a folk Americana band, which is very, they have two front men. One's kind of very ethereal sounding and the other is, is very kind of rustic, more earthy sounding. They're a great, great band. Love. I think that night they were with Sean Carey. Who's the drummer from Bon Iver there as well? So oh, Bon Iver's from Minnesota. My sister went to college. Oh, they're from with him. Eau Claire. Yeah, my sister went to college with Matt Eau Claire. Yeah, uh, yeah. I'm sorry, he's he's made it big in Minnesota, but he's from Eau Claire. But um, speaking of Iowa, that 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 Mineral Point isn't far from there, and in fact, it's in southwestern Wisconsin in Iowa County, Iowa County Wisconsin. Right? So it all ties together. As it's, it's, it's a very cool town, very unique architecture. Uh, there's nothing like it, really. Some of the buildings remaining are from the 1840s and earlier, you know, built out of stone by the miners from Cornwall that that settled there many, many years ago. And there's Cornwall, England, right? There's there's many boutiques and art galleries. It's very kind of Door County-ish, you know, the vibe you um, get. More mini version of Door County, right? I mean, they're obviously Door County is a peninsula, so it's much more, you know, water heavy, which Mineral Point is. Well, no, it's, it's a little. Not. It's a little bigger and sure more, even more of a tourist trap than than Mineral Point. But the whole be. kind of artistic vibe with all the galleries and boutique shops and restaurants and 
restaurants in you know century plus old buildings it's very much the same feel very tourist heavy you know about 2500 people live there so it's it's not a big town but it's a it's a great town cool place to uh to go for a weekend it's no part doubt. of the madison metropolitan statistical area it lies within the driftless area of wisconsin as far as that's referring to the to the glaciers there's a population typically around 2600 total of 3.08 square miles it's known to be a twin town with the town of redruth in as scott mentioned cornwall england even have foreign exchange program between the two towns. That's how twin connected they are. It's sometimes referred to as the state's third oldest city. However, the Wisconsin Historical Society notes that several other colonial settlements are older than that. It was first settled by immigrants in 1827 in the hills of southwestern Wisconsin, becoming the most important lead-producing region in the entire country in the 19th century. Prospectors, miners, and adventurers from Ireland, Germany, and, as we mentioned, Cornwall, England, swarmed to the hills, living in crude shelters known as badger holes, which I believe we mentioned in another podcast. That's how Wisconsin got its badger state name. I didn't know that until Scott's vast knowledge (laughs) pointed that out to me. That wasn't even sarcastic. It just sounded that way because that's how I talk. But you knew that. I didn't. I had, not, I had no idea. Yeah, the batters, they, they would, the, the miners would, would uh, carve out these little, uh, these little caves on the side of the cliffs. And instead of coming in all the time to rest, they would just take little naps in these holes that they would carve out on the side of the cliff, and they looked like badger dens. And that's where it comes from. It has nothing to do with the animal right, itself, and right. I don't know that yep. most people know that. It was once nicknamed the Shag Rag Under the Hill, again having to do with all the mining and everything, supposedly due to miner working at the top of a hillside mine, knowing it was dinner time when women in cottages below waved dish towels. It was known as Merry Christmas Mine Hill. The street with remaining restored miner homes once called Horde Street is still known today as Shake Rag Street, as I mentioned before, Shake Rag Under the Hill. By 1830, the population was greater than that of Milwaukee and Chicago combined. So that kind of goes to tell you how big the mining industry was at that point. By 1857, the introduction of the railroad made it an important center of commerce. By the 1870s, the second mining boom of zinc carbonate came to the city, eventually surpassing the production of lead. And recently, in 1971, it became the first Wisconsin Community of National Register of Historical Places. In 2004, Mineral Point Railroad Depot was restored and reopened as a public museum. And in 2007, Mineral Point was recognized as one of National Trust for Historic Preservation's dozen distinctive destinations. And it was also designated as Preserve America Community in January of 2007. So there's a lot going on there for such a small little developed area. That's Scott Luffs. And as usual, has been to, like all the other cities in Wisconsin. You've never really never been to Mineral Point? I, I think I've been through it in passing because I've traveled a lot, but I travel through Wisconsin as I go to other destinations more. You don't stop and talk to the locals at all? No, I should. I'm with <laughs> my family. That's the best part. I think it's because I'm with my family and either I'm embarrassed of them or they're embarrassed of me and we just don't. <laughs> Want to interact with people? You just those fly people. on by, huh? right? You just keep moving, like the Griswolds. We just want to do everybody the favor, right. I guess. Right. A few episodes ago, we talked about the legends of the Kettle Moraine, and that was a very popular episode. So we thought we'd go ahead and hit you up with another episode right away, similar to that, because we know what we're doing, don't we, Mick? We sure and, think we do. 
hit you up. We're trying with, to fool you if you don't believe it. With Legends of Mineral Point, because it's it's a very old town with with lots of with lots going on through its history, as Mickey said, but with lots of strange and very bizarre uh, happenings reported bizarre. in it. Now, as Mickey said, it was first settled uh, by Europeans in 1827, so it's pretty old. And says the motto, their motto is "Where Wisconsin Began." And that's because when uh, Henry Dodge was inaugurated as the governor of the newly formed Wisconsin Territory, which before that we were the Michigan Territory. So thank God we broke off from that. Yeah. And we called ourselves the Wisconsin Territory. They got a lot of good breweries, but that's about it. Governor Dodge was inaugurated as the first governor of the Wisconsin Territory in downtown Mineral Point. So that's where the, quote, where Wisconsin began, uh, unquote, motto comes from. So, but it before then, it already had been the county seat of Iowa County for several years. And in 1836 here, we're still 12 years away from Wisconsin becoming a state. So we're going back a little ways here. So now, obviously, before Europeans were here, it was inhabited for centuries by Native Americans. Kickapoo, Sauk, Ho-Chunk, and a bunch of others who were here for many, many generations, which is a big deal because, you know, if you look at 1827, we're still, what, five years from the Black Hawk War? And things were not great <laughs> between whites and natives at that time. Man, and you that, paint a picture. Well, that might come into play a little bit yeah, uh, when sure we talk about some of the things we're going to talk about today. So, you know, in the 1830s, after the lead mines were opened up, miners from Cornwall flooded the area. Because that was their forte. They were expert miners and stone workers. And when the mines dried up in England, they came here for the work. So a lot of the architecture that remains in Mineral Point today... Based on that culture alone. But like I said, it was also bits from Ireland and Germany too, but a strong a strong influence from the Cornwall England. Sure. You know, especially the older buildings there today, the, the, the buildings cut from the limestone there. They, they were built by the Cornish. And Even the food that you can get preserved. there now is all based on mm-hmm. that, that particular, which is... Celtic-based. Now, we should probably set the scene here a little bit, right? Because this area was pretty rough back in the day. Not like it is today, right? It's very quaint, very artsy, you know? It wasn't that back then, right? These were miners. These were drifters. These were people looking for work. They were gamblers. They were drinkers. There were saloons all over the place. And it was pretty lawless. And in a memoir from... Sounds like Northwood's Vice episode a little bit. Right? So in a memoir from a Swiss immigrant named Theodore Rodolph, who came here in 1834, he wrote about riding on horseback to his farm that he purchased in the area. Now, obviously, it was purchased sight unseen because that's what you did, right? You didn't get to look on Zillow. You didn't get to set up an appointment to, you know, for a walkthrough before you bought your property. Why didn't they use the internet more? (laughs) They're just being lazy. You found out there was a lot for sale and you either took it or you lost it. So you bought things sight unseen. So this guy in 1834 is making his first trip to his new home. Right, without even having any idea about it, other than he wanted some land. So he write, he writes about, uh, you know, on riding on horseback, and he's going through Mineral Point to get to his new farm, which is outside of Mineral Point. And he writes, quote, It was a beautiful September day. We followed the ridge road through the timber. The trees had already assumed the variegated hues, which... A few light frosts had imparted upon them. The wild plum trees and the wild grapes lined our path on both sides as if they were set out on a regular park. It sounds beautiful, right? I never enjoyed a more agreeable ride until we came 
within a few miles of Mineral Point. Dun, dun, dun. Here, the hills were stripped of their trees, and windlasses, mineral holes, piles of dirt and rocks greeted our view on all sides. Windlasses are the, um, the structures that you see in mining towns, which was basically an elevator pulley system, which would wind up pulling the lead up from the mines. And these were um, just littered the scene when you got to Mineral Point in the 1830s. He goes on to say, quote, I did not consider Mineral Point a safe place to stop in. Besides the large number of miners, the public land sales brought hundreds of strangers to the place, and accommodations were scarce and poor, unquote. So there's all kinds of people here in the 1830s, people looking for land, people looking to get rich, right? This is the gold rush before the gold rush. Right. They, they eventually would leave this area for that, as we'll mention, but this was what they were doing here in the first place. And it was basically the Wild West, yeah. you know, and this is... Outlaws and no, not not a lot of laws in place. You could kind of do whatever you wanted. And we're actually 40, 50 years before the Wild West yet. Right. So it's, you know, it's it's that much more unorganized and it's, that's that much more raw. So you can imagine what went on here. Thank God we have our government now to make things yeah, aren't so they? much Yeah, they're clearer. so trustworthy. And it's just so much more, less <laughs> lawless than it was back then. Sure. You know, lawlessness, roughnecks, highwaymen, murder. There was many, many legends and stories about it. But, you know, obviously most of that stuff that went down we'll never know about because it wasn't written about. It wasn't documented like it is mostly today. But the stories are pretty brutal. And, you know, a lot of those we'll get into today. Now, probably the most famous paranormal mystery or the most famous paranormal legend of Mineral Point is one that we actually covered before a little bit. And that was in our in our Halloween episode that we had last fall. And that is about the Walker House. Now, the Walker House is a beautiful bed and breakfast in Mineral Point and one of the oldest buildings in the state. And now just reading... Uh, right from their website here. It says, Carved into the same hillside rock from which mineral ore was first discovered and mined in the 1820s, the Walker House stands proud as one of the oldest, unique, and most beautiful buildings in the United States. It was listed on the National Register of Historic Places. A large structure, the Walker House includes 42 rooms covering almost 16,000 square feet, and it sits on the south side of historic Mineral Point, Wisconsin, in the Midwest's unparalleled driftless region. Enjoy reading about the history of the Walker House, looking at the montage of images, and getting the story straight about its purported ghosts. Not in doubt, however, are the building's stones dating back to the 1830s, the original mortar in parts of the house, and a few wavy windows over a hundred years old in 2003 it was actually declared one of the most endangered properties in wisconsin it can be booked for events weddings and meetings and there's 11 guest rooms with over 30 other rooms waiting to be explored as scott mentioned in episode 13 wisconsin's most haunted part one that's where we discuss this in further detail we went over the history of the walker house um in the previous episode as mickey said episode 13 the halloween episode that was our Halloween episode, episode 13. I don't Two remember men, that. We know what we're doing. Wow. Even if we don't, it works out for us. So we won't like go over every other aspect of our lives. The entire history of the Walker House. But if you want to know that, 
Uh, go ahead, as Mickey said, listen to episode 13. Now, just for context here, it was built in 1847 by Irish immigrant William Walker. And now the building says 1836. Is that where it got its name from, I wonder? I'm, I'm assuming that's where it got its that name. That makes sense. got to be too much of a coincidence, right? Uh, there's some logic there, yeah. <laughs> now, the building on the sign says 1836, and that's not fully accurate. Um, and as they say in the blurb that I just read, some of the stones date back to that time because Walker built on already existing structures. So he first built it at his private residence, but there were already um, structures there that were built in the 1830s. So they were probably Cornish cottages that were there already on that spot. The building that's standing there now, that was not built in 1836. Most of the building was actually from the 1860s. But it was begun to be built in 1847 by William Walker. He builds it at first as his private residence, and then adds on a tavern, and then it turned into a hotel when the railroad came in 1857, virtually right across the street from it. And that depot um, is also still there. As Mickey said before, it's preserved, and it's called the Mineral Point Railroad Museum, and it's the oldest depot still in existence in Wisconsin. Now, Walker passes away in 1899, and it begins its long, century-long decline into dilapidation, right? And by the time Ted Lannon bought it in hopes of restoring it in 1964, there was no heat, no electricity, no water, no sewer. Most of the windows were busted out, right? Even the outhouses were no longer functioning. It was in pretty bad shape. Outhouses aren't pretty to begin with, so. How do those not function? Like, yeah, right. like were they moved? Or was the poop... <laughs> Up above the hole where you sit, or I mean, not sure. Yeah, that's a weird visual I'm getting though. So now it 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 just becomes this massive money pit for a bunch of other buyers that buy into it and try to, you know, they all have these visions of bringing it back to its original glory, right? None of whom could, until it got to the current owners, who bought it in 2012 and they made it into what it is now. However, money and structural problems are not the only issues previous owners had with the building. It's apparently very, very haunted. So ever since the 1960s, when Ted Lannan first attempted to restore the property, there have been decades of reports by many people of hauntings in the building. Disembodied voices, footsteps, heavy breathing, all this typical haunting stuff. They would see an apparition of a little girl upstairs. They would see white shapes floating around. They would see floating heads, moving chairs, there was a college student that lived there in the 1970s who ran out of there and moved out right away because he said it was uh, his room was the, the door handle on his room was rattling all night long and it was too haunted for him, you know, to stay in. Staff members throughout the decades when it was a restaurant would see floating objects moving on their own. They would hear conversations in upstairs rooms and they would go check to see who was in there and there'd be nobody there. Stories of a light being seen in one of the third floor rooms from a distance away from the building even with a woman in a nightgown looking out the window then turning and walking away. There are multiple stories that as we discussed in that episode don't necessarily come from any event that happened that might have caused it. So there's just a lot of legends that don't necessarily have a history behind them. And they say they're, they're very prominent. You know, it's not just like something fell off a table. Uh, they're just hearing things, right? They, they, these people are pretty confident that something is going on here. 
that they cannot understand it. Now, an apparition of a headless figure is also seen at the property at times, wearing what appeared to be a miner's jacket and jeans. And so this is the one apparition that they do think they know who this person was. William Caffey. is a murderer named William Caffey. Now, the legend of William Caffey and why he haunts the Walker house is all over the place, as a lot of legends are. You, If you just do Google searches on this thing, you'll see all sorts of things to... Caffey murdered an unnamed stranger in the Walker house one night, uh, you know, in 1842, or that he killed his rival in a, in a duel at the Walker house. That's the one that seems to me the most consistent. But like you said, no matter what you look up, you there's different versions of the same story and there's different stories altogether. Or that he murdered a man in a different town and then came to the Walker house and hid and he was found there and later hanged outside in a tree. None of this is true. None, none of this, none of these stories are true, and we know this because the Walker House didn't exist in 1842, as we just said. It wasn't built until 1847, right? And there was nothing. I mean, there were some some abandoned structures there that was built onto, but there was nothing there for him to be partying in in 1842. It didn't happen there. Now, obviously, with ev- with with every legend like this, there is stuff that rings true about it, right? William Caffey was a real person. He was a murderer, and he was executed in Mineral Point for the murder by hanging in 1842. But the Walker House, you know, the legend is that he was hung, he was hung, hanged? Hanged. Outside the Walker House. Use your good English. But obviously that can't be true because there was no Walker House in 18. 18- 42. Either way, it seems, from what I've read over and over, the spirit doesn't seem to mean any harm and shows up during refurbishing periods, from what I've read. And overall, the most consistent, there's one spirit known as benign and the other is known as obnoxious. But they speak of unknown footsteps and creepy breathing sounds that followed around Ted Langdon. Uh, Those are the most consistent. Otherwise, even the ones based on William Caffey, don't seem to be real dangerous or harm-provoking. So what Caffey did do is, is he did murder a man, and he murdered a man named Samuel Southwick at the Berry Tavern in what is now Schulzburg. The Berry Tavern still exists, by the way, which is older than the Walker House. So It's a place we should visit. Heck yeah. Now, the Berry Tavern was actually I built... I want to go to Mineral Point anyway, so... In 1829, and the structure that is there today was actually built in 18... 18- so now what happened in 1842 is that the, the Berry Tavern at the time uh, had a party. And the owners of the Berry Tavern, uh, who were Adeline Berry and her husband Fortunatus Berry, were hosting a birth night ball to celebrate a Are birth night ball. Are those all words ball. that go together? I guess so. <laughs> That's a real Which thing. Is, I feel like I just had a stroke. It's called a birth night ball, and it was to celebrate the 110th anniversary of George Washington's birthday. Now, the interesting thing is the, there is an invitation from this ball, from this, basically at this house tavern in Schulzburg, Wisconsin, which wasn't even called Schulzburg then. It was called Gratio's Grove. Sure, um, everybody knows that. It still exists. There's, you know, they have uh, an invitation, an original invitation from this from this birth night ball um, that still exists. So what it was, again, it was a party to celebrate George Washington's 110th birthday. And as part of the festivities, the guests would participate in an advanced form of square dancing. Now, William Caffey was one of the people who was a 29-year-old miner in the area was one of the people that received an invitation to this ball. Minor as in person who mined, not underage. 
He was 29. 29-year-old minor. Right. Sounds funky. Like. Now, long story short, there's a fracas there. Uh, William Caffey kind of goes off the deep end. He gets into an argument with a man named Samuel Southwick, and Caffey shoots him dead right outside the front door of the Barry Tavern. And then he's, so the town's after him, right? He runs away. He actually gets to St. Louis, but he gets arrested. He gets brought back to Mineral Point, and he gets put on trial. And uh, he gets convicted of the murder and sentenced to death. So he's sentenced to death, and the legend is that he is hung from a tree right outside the Walker House House, in Mineral Point, which obviously we've already discussed is not true. So what is the real thing that happened here? Well, on November 1st, 1842, 5,000 people in Mineral Point came to the execution of William Caffey, and they come to the— It was a party to watch his hanging. It was a picnic, right? It was a pleasant fall day, this says, and the spectators occupied themselves with picnic lunches and conversation before the grand attraction arrived. The crowd of four to 5,000 was diverse, with people of every age, sex, color, and condition fully represented. Condition. We're pe- as twisted as we are now and, and desensitized, th- we don't have picnics to watch someone die, at least. So maybe we've evolved to Ted since then, huh? Good for us. <laughs> You know, I, I I wonder if there were public executions, though, we would. You know, would you? Well, right, the Roman Colosseum, for God's sake. I mean. Sure. Well, even way after that, I mean, even in the, the early 1900s when there right. were lynchings, people well, watched But I shit. mean, as far back as, as an entire arena, people would fill to the brim to watch people killing other people, you know? I, yeah. I guess it's just yeah. in our nature. So this uh, this is from driftlessroadtrip.com, and that's a blog that talks about the execution of William Caffey. And it says, quote, At 2 o'clock, a macabre parade assembled in front of the local jail. At the front was Major Gray's dragoons, wielding pistols and sabers. Second was a band of uniformed men with muskets under the charge of Captain Shaw. Next was a series of horse-drawn wagons, one of which contained Caffey's coffin deputies brought him out in a long white robe and a cap with a rope already tied around his neck instead of taking a seat in the front of the wagon caffey sat astride his own casket caffey enjoyed the music keeping beat to the melody by striking his coffin lid many accounts say he used two empty beer bottles tapping along with the beat he had a sense of humor on his way to his own execution now the gallows the execution took place right about where the depot is today, which is about 100 yards from Walker House. So, no, he was not hung from a tree in the front yard of the Walker House. That's not true. The Walker House didn't exist. But he was hung from a gallows 100, yards, 100 yards from the front door of what is now the Walker House. So this is who people today believe is haunting the Walker House. Now, the owners today... They don't buy it. They really have nothing to do with any of the kind of paranormal aspect of the house. Over the past decades, kind of the the paranormal aspect of the Walker House was kind of pushed, and that was to to drum up business when it was a restaurant. They wanted people in there. They did ghost hunts in there. Um, these people who own it, they've owned it since 2012. They don't want anything to do with that. They and that's don't. that's kind of the case with a lot of these haunted places. They they want to sell it, and because. People like that, but like you say, some people want nothing to do with it. They just want to open it right. as a legitimate business. Some of the other anecdotes include a door in waitstaff restroom opening by itself, even when locked from the inside, a heat register panel in the downstairs room being found mysteriously detached 
and relocated. Numerous abrupt temperature changes, especially on that third floor where Caffey is known to roam, supposedly. Conversations being had by guests with someone as they walked down the hallway, only to find nobody there when they turned around. Guests bumping into invisible mass as they walked through the inn. At one point, one owner even had the place exercised because these legends have existed for so long. Now, years ago, when Vicky and I were there, for, for a different, this is well before the one we were there a couple of years ago. This is probably 10, 12 years ago. Um, Vicky's his wife. Vicky is my Vicky, not Mickey, Vicky. No, not me. Uh, yeah. Yes, my wife. We were there just it for, was more romantic. Just for a weekend, I think. This is, this is before our kids, so this was at least 11 years ago. She still liked you back then. Um, so we were there just for a weekend, you know, and we went to the Walker house. It was not open at the time, it was totally abandoned. So you broke in. Um, we didn't break in. We just stayed. Oh. We just stayed in the. Thought it was a Bonnie and the Clyde kind of, thing. You know, the yard that had all kinds of kind of garbage around it and stuff. Oh, but you we slept in the yard with we garbage. Did, no, we didn't sleep in the yard. And you know how to treat your wife. But we we kind of hung around and you know just because of the, the you know the ambiance of the place the the uh, supposed haunted history of the place and we did we did some recording there. We did try to do some EVP. Well, it was recording. kind of a hunt. Oh. We did get something kind of interesting that I'll I'll, I'll play on a future episode. Really. Another very popular ghost story in the area is the Ridgeway ghost. And in the earlier days, it's, it, this is a lot of times referred to as the Ridgeway phantom, I think. But mostly, as I think most of the research that we've done or that I've done, it's mostly referred to as the Ridgeway ghost. Right. I, I went into this thinking it was a Ridgeway phantom. Most of what I read is people refer to it as the ghost. Now, this is in reference to the town of Ridgeway, which is about 15 miles from Mineral Point along the Military Ridge Road which was built to road built by the U.S. Army at the time, connecting Fort Howard in Green Bay to Fort Winnebago in Portage to Fort Crawford in Prairie du Chien. And in this area, it was built along a ridge and referred to as the Ridge Way, hence the name for the town that came later. And the road is basically, today it's Highway 18151. Um, it goes right through that area. So Highway 18151, just north of Mineral Point, going through Dodgeville, going through Ridgeway, is the old military road. About a 25-plus mile stretch right. overall. So the, the Ridgeway ghost refers to all the sightings along this road in that area, not necessarily Ridgeway. Actually, when a lot of this happened, the town wasn't even called Ridgeway. It was called Castleton. So it was, it was called Ridgeway later. But So the Ridgeway ghost or the Ridgeway phantom does not necessarily mean Ridgeway the town, which is just a really small town. As a lot of the today. anecdotes actually refer or occur in Mineral Point, too. That's why we're referencing it. Right. Now, the interesting thing about this ghost, or this phantom, is that it's one of the few ghosts ever to be known to have supposedly killed people. Now, Charles E. Brown, who is kind of the patron saint of Wisconsin folklore, he also founded the Wisconsin Archaeological Society, he writes about the military road. So he says, Over this early highway were driven the ox-drawn, creaking lead wagons proceeding on their way to Milwaukee from Dodgeville, Mineral Point, and other towns and settlements in the lead region of southwestern Wisconsin along the highway between Dodgeville and Pokerville. Pokerville uh, is basically Blue Mounds today. There were no fewer than 10 or a dozen saloons, most of them with a reputation frequented by toughs, gamblers, and miners. In these taverns, fights between drunks and others were of frequent occurrence, and robberies and murders were committed. Michael Norman, in his book Haunted Wisconsin, also writes, quote, There were more than 22 saloons 
on the main thoroughfare called Military Ridge Road between Blue Mounds and Dodgeville, a distance of only 25 miles and roughly along what is now Highway 18-151. Drunken fistfights, robberies, murders, or an occasional clubbing were not uncommon along that rough thoroughfare. Various criminal elements along with gamblers, prostitutes, their lives often tragically cut short, joined the immigrant miners. All kinds of riffraff going on along this road, right? Saloons, gambling, prostitutes. Again, as we mentioned before, this is the Wild West. Now, this ghost, there's hundreds of reports about this supposed Ridgeway ghost. It seems early on that it was cast off kind of as a, a mischievous shapeshifter. It would take the form of a dog, sheep, pigs, a green floating light. Seems like anything that somebody saw along the side of the road, they would attribute it to the Ridgeway ghost. Dogs, sheeps, pigs, horse, man with a whip, a young woman, an old woman, a ball of fire, a headless horseman riding backwards on a horse, and so much more. So there was so many different varieties of this, as Scott said. Anything they saw was basically chalked up to being the, the Ridgeway ghost. And anything that happened to them, you know, like if, if they, they would, you know, they were all driving in carriages at the time, right? I mean, anytime they would throw a wooden wheel on their carriage or something, oh, there's that damn Ridgeway oh, phantom. I, you I know? broke wind. Oh, that must be the right. phantom. Yeah. You know, so it, it seems like it was an invented story to kind of scare off the seedy people from coming and because the, they didn't want any riffraff hanging around the roadway, but... It didn't matter. That was one speculation that because this area was populating awfully quickly, they were trying to get the riffraff to leave, and this was a story that they supposedly conjured up to scare people away. But it didn't work. No. Because this phantom or ghost got much darker. So, and it, it, it said that the spiritual activity ramps up every 40 years or so, occurring again more frequently in the 1890s, the 1930s, and the 1970s. It was believed that when it would leave, it was, quote, because he could not stand the whistle and puffing of the railroad engines and the rattling over the rails of the trains of freight and passenger cars, unquote. You know, and I think that's that's kind of modern-day explanations saying right. that, you know. They weren't it, there at the time. It doesn't really hang true in the whole 40-year thing. There's hundreds right. of accounts. Counts right. of the Ridgeway ghosts that are not in that forty year. No, but it, it uh, seems like the most the, the 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 most frequent stories happen in those time segments, or that's that's the stats that people have come up with just to make the legend even more more of a legend. The story of Doctor Cutler is believed to be the first person to see the ghost in human form. Now, Doctor Cutler, one night, as the story goes, sometime in the early eighteen fifties. While riding in his horse-drawn carriage along the Ridgeway Road, suddenly noticed somebody sitting beside him in his carriage that he was supposedly alone in. The figures dressed all in black and remained silent. The doctor was in shock and couldn't believe what he was seeing, thinking he was really drunk, because he did like to drink. Uh, he didn't say anything either. Apparently the doc liked to partake in a, a little bit of opium every now and again as well but imagine you're driving down a, a highway at nighttime in your carriage and all of a sudden something that wasn't there just shows up next to you all dressed in black and says nothing for about a mile he rode in his carriage with this being that just manifested out of nowhere right and then it just disappears boom gone it's said that Cutler saw this phantom three other times in his life, with the third one leading to his killing from the fright. Yeah. He actually, like, 
It scared him so much, it scared him to death. So about a year later, after this first encounter, while coming back from seeing a patient, again, he's driving past the same stretch of road when a figure again appeared sitting on the shaft of his carriage between his horses. So the doctor attempts to rile up his horses, right, and gets them up to speed, and they start running, and he starts going up hills and down hills, and he's trying to get rid of this figure, and the figure's not wavering. It's just standing there on the shaft between his horses, and again, it just simply disappears. So Dr. Cutler tries to tell everybody this, right? Anybody who would hear him what he's seeing, nobody believes him. They thought he was drunk. They thought he was high on opium. But then another story comes which legitimizes Dr. Cutler's story. At least in his mind, it legitimizes it. And this story, the legend is that in the 1860s, William Lewis, who was a farmer in Ridgeway, who also moonlighted as a wrestler, was over helping some others in the area with butchering animals. That seemed to be his his specialty. He was kind of a butcher, right? So when people needed help butchering their animals, they call in William Lewis here, and he has no problem taking care of, of that. So he's butchering um, some animals at, a, at kind of a neighbor's house. And uh, one evening before it was dark, he was warned that he should probably start heading home because the phantom has been seen in the area lately, and he should get home before it gets dark. So they, you know, they're telling William that he should probably start start heading home because he doesn't want to get caught by the Ridgeway ghost, right? And he sneers at this. He doesn't believe in such hogwash, right? And besides, he's a massive... That's a word that he used back then. Nice, of course. Nice pull. Yes. I use that word a lot. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what a bunch of hogwash that is. So he's a massive man, right? He's, he moonlights as a, as a wrestler. And he's carrying an arsenal of butcher knives, Right, so he's not real scared about this thing. He thinks he, ah, might, he could be a serial well, killer himself. Be fine, right? Yeah. Dexter. Well, on his way home, he starts feeling a little uneasy, and he starts cutting through some fields to get home quicker. It's not the gas station sushi either. And here, I think they had that picked in. I'll pick it up from the New York Times, who wrote about this in 1902. So the legend has gotten around a little bit because it's in. The New York Times in 1902. It says, quote, The night was not dark, and when he drew near the haunted spot, he determined to cut across lots to reach his home. He was approaching the stone wall at the roadside to climb it when his attention was arrested by a sight of a figure that seemed to have gathered itself together out of the just now tenantless air and stood confronting him in a menacing attitude. He decided that someone must be trying to frighten him, and so he hailed the figure and no response being given, he advanced upon it. The figure did not budge, but stood a towering shape of blackness, a gigantic and grisly thing. Some unaccountable awe and the uncanny hugeness of the thing made Lewis decide to avoid a conflict, and drawing his butcher's knife from his pocket, he started to pass by when the figure, raising its arm with a forbidding gesture, stepped athwart his path. Another word you use a lot. Athwart. What a bunch of hogwash. Obeying a hasty impulse that was more ghastly and soul-chilling fear than it was anger, Lewis let drive his keen knife. Next morning, a neighbor found Lewis lying inside the wall in a semi-conscious condition. Of what happened after he had struck with his knife, he had but vague impressions. He said he had been hurled in the air as if in the vortex of a cyclone, pounded and crushed into insensibility. He died a few hours later and was carried home, asserting with his dying breath that he had come to his end by a supernatural 
entity. So now, after he's carried home, his son pried the knives out of his still clutching hands. And that son, whose name was Evan Lewis, this is an interesting story. His son's name was Evan Lewis, and he went on to become Evan Strangler Lewis, the first ever recognized heavyweight champion in professional wrestling and the inventor of the sleeper hold. Really? <laughs> yeah. His yes. nickname was the Strangler. The Strangler, that's, that's, right. And he would talk about he his... He invented the sleeper I hold. Guess, I didn't yeah. know that either. And no. he would talk about his father's death at the hands of the Ridgeway Ghost. So his... So did you know, the, the sleeper hold come from a supernatural agency? That one I can't tell you. Is that where he invented it? Yeah, but so... That is interesting. That's crazy. The first death purported by the Ridgeway Ghost happens to William Lewis as he gets hurled like a cyclone, apparently, gets carried home and dies a few hours later. And there are two more reported deaths caused by the seeing of the Ridgeway Ghost, including, as Mickey said, Dr. Cutler himself, who upon the third time seeing the Phantom never recovered and died of fright. Okay, now, as we said, there's there's hundreds of stories about the Ridgeway Ghost along that road. Another story, a man named Johnny Owens was walking toward the town of Ridgeway one night singing Welsh songs to kill time. Approaching a big roadside tree, he saw three dark objects hanging from a limb. As he got closer, he noticed they were bodies hanging by the necks, and he ran the rest of the way to Ridgeway, you know, understandably. Next morning, with several friends, he returned to the tree and found no bodies there. One more story, a man named Jim Moore went to see his girl on a farm near Blue Mounds. As he walked back home, a ghost appeared by his side, walking with him step by step all the way home with neither ever speaking. (laughs) Jim said he never saw that girl again. So basically these people see these apparitions, they run away and they never go back. Now see, that one is interesting because it's just like the the Dr. Cutler one. And it's funny. Where he's just, he's he's on the highway by himself. And this thing just appears. It right. just like shows up and doesn't say anything. Right, and I and it, like you said, <laughs> he walked all the way back. Jim never saw that it, girl right. again. It's, she is not like, worth this. Well, it sounds like it's something warning him. You will stay. You right. will stay away from right. that girl. <laughs> right. Maybe it right. was dead. <laughs> <laughs> so now, I mean, there's any number of stories what the origin of this might be, right, or who this might be this Ridgeway ghost or this Ridgeway phantom. Um, now, according to the New, York, the New York Times, the phantom is the, quote, wraith of a young miner killed in the lead mines well prior to the Civil War. One story is that it's the ghost of a drifter who was killed in Samson's Bar, which was one of the saloons along the road. It's, it's speculated that the peddler stopped at the saloon and was never seen again, having been taken by the phantom. His saddled and bridled horse returned to the saloon without a rider. One of the sadder stories... And this is one that you hear pretty often. This is kind of like in all the haunted Wisconsin books and things like that. It's it's supposedly the combined revenge spirit of two brothers, two teenage brothers who were killed uh, when they got caught up in a bar brawl at McKillop's Saloon along the Ridgeway in the winter of 1840. So the legend of that is that these are two brothers. They're 14 and 15 years old. So they, they're cold. They're cold and they come into this bar and they're looking to warm up. Just these 14 and 15 year old boys and a bar brawl for whatever reason starts sounds like because it was wednesday back then (laughs) and and these boys were caught up in it the 14 year old was thrown into the fireplace and burned alive the 15 year old was able to escape but they found his body the next spring 
as he froze to death. So death by fire and ice. Right. Two brothers, two different nasty ways to die. And for many years after, an old woman was seen walking along the ridgeway in the vicinity of where McKillops used to be. And this is thought to be uh, maybe the boy's grandmother uh, searching for them. And there have been many female spirits that have been seen along the road as well. But this, this story of these two teenage boys, it's told a lot. It's one of the more famous kind of legends in that area. So I'm assuming there you, you can't find any corroboration of it. Actually, the town of Ridgeway burned down in 1910, and all of the documents went with it. So there's nothing prior, really, to, to 1910 that survives about Ridgeway other than word of mouth. Documentation wasn't all that great back then, anyway. No, but there may, there may be something, there might have been something there about who these two boys were and whether this was a real story or not because like i said a lot of legends are based in some kind of truth and this is this story you hear i've heard this story for many many years this this is a story that's likely in my opinion probably based in truth somewhat uh, not not a not that they're the ridgeway phantom but that this really happened these these teenage boys got caught up in a brawl and wound up dead because of this fire and ice uh, another story as far as the the, the killing aspect of the of this phantom. In 1933, Louis Muir, a sexton of the Catholic cemetery in Ridgeway, didn't return home one night. The next day, his body was found hanging in a tool shed. He had been in poor health for over a year, but rumors said he probably had an argument with the ghost and it hanged him. Fear became so rampant from all these stories and, and, and anecdotes that citizens actually started requesting armed escorts to guide them from their homes after sunset in the entire town. Now, when when you research this, when you research this Ridgeway ghost, Ridgeway which you don't need phantom, to because we've so eloquently right. done it for you. There's countless stories, as we said, and they're all under the same name: the Ridgeway ghost, the Ridgeway phantom, as if it's one entity, or one phantom shapeshifter, right? I, you know, I don't necessarily believe that. I believe that there are multiple entities here derived from many things. It's not all pure legend. Like we said, there's hundreds of reports of this thing. Some of them, you know, like the one that Mickey just said that some, you know, a guy was found hanging in a tree, so they attribute that to the phantom. Well, no, he probably got caught up with a highwayman, you well, know, and, and likely we, robbed. There's no way they can all be linked to the same no. supposed creature. So, but back then, it was easier to chalk things up to one story, whereas now we look more into things and we have technology that allows right. us to, you know, blow away these myths a lot quicker. And, you know, a lot of people attribute this to Cornish folklore as well and traditions. Right. And I don't, I don't, stories to begin with. I don't know that I see that either. Like, the, there's the tale of Spring Heeled Jack comes up a lot when, when you're trying to find the, the nucleus or the matrix of, of this. And I don't, you know, Spring Heeled Jack is an English urban legend and he's kind of a more of a mischievous character, you know, playing tricks on people. And, you know, he's tall and slender and he's in a dark cape with a white face and that he's able to glide through the air and take gigantic leaps, hence the name Spring-Heeled Jack. And I don't, I don't see that maybe in the more lighthearted cases, you know, you can right. say that that comes from Cornish mythology, but. But if this ghost is known to kill, what, right. why is, why is it happening one way and also the other if they are all linked? Right. And Spring-Heeled Jack is more London based. And there's actually a case out of Iowa as well called the Van Meter Monster that is also attributed to Spring-Heeled Jack a lot. But you're right, Mickey, this is much darker. Um, Spring-Heeled Jack fits much more with something that we'll be talking about in, in, a, in a little bit. 
Um, but this Ridgeway ghost is, is much darker than Cornish folklore. You know, I think this is a microcosm of a lot of other things that was going on along that highway in the 1840s and 50s. And the highway ghost certainly is not Cornish, right? I mean, those are all over the place. Resurrection Mary, Boy Scout Lane and Stevens Point. I mean, there's highway ghosts all over the place. So, you know, this was a brutal time with lots of death and murder and assaults and theft and highwaymen. We talked about a lot of that in our Wisconsin death trip episode. Right. And, you know, again, this is a time before the Black Hawk War. And if you read some of the accounts that was going on between whites and natives at that time, I'll spare you the details, but it was not good. You know, and if you, you, you think about the, the relationship between the natives and whites, there were, I mean, there were kids getting scalped. There's Indian children getting bludgeoned in raids. It was god-awful. We have no idea what these people were dealing with in the 1820s and 30s. So it's very possible, in my opinion, that a lot of this stuff reported is from some legit weird energy going on there, you know? I mean, there's a lot of trauma going on in places like Mineral Point and Ridgeway and Dodgeville from the 1820s and 1830s. And or it so, could be as simple as racism chalked up to a story because, you know, people were allowed to get away with that kind of stuff more. Who knows? I think it's probably a combination of all of it. And when the railroad came in in the late 1850s and 60s, the road obviously becomes much less traveled. The saloons dried up and left, and the road became virtually deserted. So the reports of ghosts along that highway eventually ended as well. But the legends and tales of the miners didn't at all. Those legends keep going strong. And in the words of the great Stephen King, quote, I want to go out, don't know if I can, because I'm so afraid of the Tommyknocker man. One of the superstitions or urban legends, so to speak, that the Cornish did bring over here from the homeland definitely was that of the Tommyknockers. Now, they are not specific to Cornish, but their version is probably the, the most well-known, although they're not heard of much anymore today. They were pretty prevalent in Cornish lore centuries ago, up to and including the time, you know, when 10,000 a month were, were coming over here in the 1830s. Now, they're very similar to the Irish leprechaun, right, which everybody knows, of course. Tommyknockers were thought to live in mines. They were, in legend, little men, right? Miners two feet tall with greenish skin and long, flowing white beards. They look a little like tiny old men with disproportionately large heads. I'm just going to say I know a few guys that fit this description. Right. Now, to get a little idea of what these were supposed to have looked like, although they haven't been prominent really in recent years. You better not be posting a picture of me, buddy. It's no, not funny. No. Okay. You know, other than a Stephen King novel, there there are a few names that you may know of Tommy Knockers. Danny DeVito. No. Oh. Doc, Sleepy, Dopey, Grumpy, Happy, Bashful, and Sneezy. Oh, the first animated film in in history. Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. That's the first Disney animated film. Did you know that? I thought Fantasia was. Nope, that was afterwards. Oh. Snow White is the first animated film. I did not know that. And it won awards and everything because of it. Because of Tommyknockers? Or because the it seven? was the first animated film. 
Maybe both. Maybe they were knowledgeable about the whole Tommyknockers thing, which I never the heard of. The seven before. dwarves were Tommyknockers. Dopey is right? a Tommyknocker? That's seven crazy. seven of them are, I guess. There's a few other terms that were used. One term was piskies, which are mythical creatures originating in the Celtic culture again, brought here by the Cornish and mostly Irish immigrants. They were also known to be good-natured and harmless, but said that mother piskies often would swap their children with human children as they felt that humans protected their children better. Another term was were known as spriggans, which are mythical creatures also brought by the Cornish immigrants. They were said to be, quote, horrible, ugly, little fellows that supposedly guarded treasure, unquote. So again, like Scott said, along the lines of leprechauns. Again, these are just other terms that might have been thrown about back in these times that came from our fatherland, essentially. So Now, uh, these are lovable characters, right? Everybody loves Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. And, they, and these were known to be somewhat protective of the miners, but as you're sometimes. about to allude to, they could also be... Mean yeah, the treated re- disrespectfully. The real life legends were not always so lovable. I, mean, I guess they didn't necessarily re- whistle while they were, right? You know, it really depends on whether you were on their good side or their bad side. Exactly, just like you said. You know, in superstitions, they they sometimes helped miners, right, and actually would sometimes work right along with them, or they would kind of knock on the walls of the mine to lead miners to where the lead was or the coal or depending on what they were looking for, right? So there, you know, there's legends that they were helpful that way. They would knock on the mines and kind of lead miners to find where the gray gold was. So because of this, Tommyknockers, uh, and they, they would also knock on the wall supposedly to warn of a collapse. So because of this, Tommyknockers were often attributed to saving miners' lives by uh, knocking on a mine wall before a collapse. So, you know, they would hear this knocking and then they would know that it's time to get out of there. But they were also known to be pranksters, pretty mischievous sometimes, stealing miners' food, stealing miners' tools. Playing tricks on the miners in general. Right. And there were many who who also believed that the knocking was not a warning. It was not a warning of a collapse, but it was a knocking to cause it. So Tommyknockers were also oftentimes blamed for many deaths, mine cave-ins, and whatnot. So if you're a miner, you don't really know what to expect, right? You're just hoping that you don't piss them right. off. So they found you know? a way to bribe them because, they, yeah, if nothing else, whether they're helping or hurting, they wanted to not piss them off, so they started bribing them. Sure. And, you know, it's easy for us to say, yeah, this is just folklore, you know. We're not the ones down there. They're they're in the earth <laughs> where death is waiting all around them, and it's dark, and if 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 the ground caves in, you're done so immediately. If, if there's something that they can do, these miners can do to, to possibly protect them, they're going to do it. And one Especially of them, if it comes to food. As Mickey said, they bribe them and they would leave food out for Tommyknockers to get on their good side, right? Almost like an offering to the gods, you know, don't hurt me. Right. I'm just going in there. I'm even giving up my lunch for you, for God's sake. And I get hangry, so that's a big <laughs> sacrifice from my point of view. Now, the food the Cornish would bring down in the mines is interesting. Okay, so these, what we're talking these about, are, are pasties. pasties. Right. Interesting. And a okay. pasty is a baked pastry a cross between a pot pie and a calzone, typically filled with beef, 
potato, other vegetables like rutabaga and onion. Not so much rutabaga anymore, but that's that's the history. They were portable, easy to heat in the mines without burning, and they would easy they were easy to hold by the crusts because they would be covered in dirt and coal. The miners could eat around the clean middle for lunch and toss the crust away. That's why these were created in the first place. It was a portable lunch, and even though they got dirty, they, the, the middle was still clean and tasty. Right, so the, the ends were crimped, right? The, cr- right. The, the, the crust was crimped so they could hold on to it with their dirty hands and eat it. And sometimes they were filled with, like, smoked bacon right. and pork and stuff. Right. Typically, I mean, traditionally it was beef and, and potatoes. Yeah. But, but yeah, they started, even they, they'd even made dessert pasties. So they would they would hold on to the crimped end of the, of the crust and eat the filling part. And then they would throw the, the crimped end as an offering to the Tommyknockers to feed them. If right? not the whole thing, because they were really scared those days. Now, in, in America, you don't see something as ingenious as this and not try to capitalize on that, right? Like Kelzone's, baby. So, a couple of brothers... Chicken pot, chicken pot, chicken pot pie. A couple of brothers who worked for Chef America in the 1970s, they developed a pasty pocket. Nice way to That it. would stay crispy like a pasty when microwaved. And it was introduced in 1980 as the Tasty Witch, and it was renamed in 1983 as the Hot Pocket. Hot Pocket. We still eat these today. Jim Gaffigan has whole segments in his stand-up routine about that. Who knew that we go to the grocery store today and buy something derived from Cornish miners miners in the 1820s? Hot Pocket. The miners didn't know what to make of these Tommyknockers, right? But they were definitely feared. Superstition or not... You wanted to stay on the good side of these little bastards, right? I mean, you, if you don't, they're going to cave in the mine that you're in. So, Or not protect you, as we said. Now, as for the origin of the Tommyknockers, it's not really clear as they go back centuries, hundreds of years. There's there's writings that go back uh, to the early 1600s that talk about fearing the Tommyknockers. So, Long before the lands here in our country were right. established. Now, there's a theory that they were believed to be the spirits of Jews who were banished to the tin mines of England way back in the 13th century. That's how far back this goes. Now, and that, you know, part of that is real. King Edward I did banish the Jews in England in 1290 to work in the tin mines because he was mad and he didn't like the Jews because, according to him, they killed Jesus. So he had them... Uh, all sent to work in the tin mine. So it rooted in a little bit of anti-Semitism there. But in, in more recent times, it's actually believed that uh, they might be derived from centuries of children who worked in the mines, often illegally. And the greenish tint of their skin was due to coming into contact with copper. So were these the original sweatshops? These were the, I, I, would, I think that's Literally. a good analogy, yeah. Literally, yeah. yeah. So as, as the legend began to take hold more in America, it seems like the thought kind of evolved into more that they're spirits of past miners who had been killed and who they're either helping other miners, you know, so they don't suffer the same fate or they're kind of more revenge spirits and they're actually luring miners to their death. But if you're a miner and you're hearing tapping or knocking in the mine, which could be indicative of a potential cave-in, that's got to be the scariest sound in the world. Right. I mean, what would be worse than that? And I mean, it's a little bit. They become desensitized. They, they're down there every minute of every day. I mean, they, these are they're working ten, twelve hour days down there. You know, I just think if you're down there and you hear a knocking and you think that could be indicative of of a 
of a cave-in. You're ready to get the hell out. You know, you, you, and you can see how these legends grow. It's kind of nice, you know, to think that there might be something down there that's looking out for you, you know? I mean, just to give you a little bit of, of peace of mind. So these were dangerous jobs, obviously. Newspaper reports in, the, in southwest Wisconsin are littered with deaths of miners all over the place. If you search for, for this stuff, if you research this stuff, or even no in the more. UP, there's songs about it. Mm. There's there's actual, uh, there's a Keweenaw brewery up in the UP where they actually have beers based on the whole concept. There, there's a few beers that are named after that whole, you know, as a tribute, like Level 42, and there's a couple others that, because mining was such a big industry in this area. I mean, they were falling down shafts, cave-ins, explosions, scores of them, scores of people dying um, in mining accidents all throughout Wisconsin, especially down here in the southwestern part of the state where it was so prominent. So the notion, again, that there's something down there able to help you, you know, either warn you or help you find what you're looking for by knocking and leading you to the right place, it's going to make you feel a little bit better. It's going to give you a little bit of a peace of mind. So, you know, again, this is, this is purely superstition and folklore to us, right? But there were mines, particularly out west, where they were shut down because of quote-unquote Tommyknockers. They were shut down because there were so many unexplainable deaths of workers that they couldn't get miners to show up anymore. And they would attribute this, the miners would attribute this to Tommyknockers. One famous mine in particular is in Cripple Creek, Colorado, and it's called the Mamie Arm Mine. It did just that. It shut down because they couldn't get workers to stay because there were so many unexplained deaths. And they said that a lot of them were being lured deep into the shafts because they heard what they thought were children. And as they would go into the deep into the mine shafts, the mine would collapse. That so, you, you know, you can see how these, these notions of Tommyknockers luring miners down and winding up killing them happens. Especially when there's children involved. People get, you know, there's their level of paranoia and, and concern raises substantially, obviously. And there's also another mine, I believe this was in, in Arizona, that was shut down in the 1950s for other reasons. It was shut down, and it was sealed up. The mine closed, and the walls were sealed up. And the workers protested for days to unseal the doors so the Tommyknockers could get out. I mean, this is real to these people, right? This is this not is, a superstition. Yeah, this is a way of life for these yes. people. Yes, I mean, again, you're, you're, you're hundreds of feet down below ground where you could lose your life in any second. You believe so, whatever you have to believe to get you through the day. So this is real to these people, you know. So other people's superstitions become other people's very reality, you know, when you're in that that realm. Now, as we said, Tommyknockers are not heard from very much anymore because mining is so much more technologically advanced and legends have mostly faded away. But Ghost Adventures and Zach Baggins did do an episode a couple seasons ago where they investigated Tommyknockers in a mine in Colorado Springs. Again, because miners working there attribute a lot of stuff going on to these creatures, right? These supposed superstitious Tommyknockers. And also, Tommyknockers came up in popular culture just a few months ago in what was really the biggest story in the world, at least for a couple days. You'll you'll recall the Ocean Gate Titan, right? That the, the the submersible that went down to tour the Titanic oh, yeah. that imploded, right? But it was it had disappeared for five days, 
and nobody knew where it was. And this was this mad rush, obviously, to find them because they were running out of oxygen. So it was this huge story and that the whole world was, was following, right, for a couple of days a few months ago. Well, during the search, you may remember that there was a small glimmer of hope that came up when they were searching for these because there, the, the Coast Guard, the United States Coast Guard, actually reported hearing mysterious knocking or banging noises coming from somewhere in the search zone. A potential sign of life as rescuers race to find the submersible that vanished while diving on the Titanic shipwreck. Sonar has picked up banging sounds in the search area, and those were repeated, those sounds, every 30 minutes. That is according to an internal U.S. government memo. Well, this morning, the Coast Guard says it's not clear what the source of the sound was, and Navy experts are analyzing it. There was a, a, a P-8, a Poseidon, a sub-hunter that had dropped buoys into the ocean. It heard banging. Every 30 minutes, they were hearing a regular banging. They sent remote-operated vehicles down to the location where they thought that sound was coming from, but were not able to find anything. They're now moving surface ships uh, around the area to see if they can either hear uh, other sounds. An absolute uh, concern here for what, if they are alive, what they must be going uh, through down there in the cold and the dark and just hoping against hope that they are rescued. Back to so they hear this banging coming from the search area, right, where they think the search area should be. Now, what they didn't know at the time is that the, the, the Titan had already imploded. It was gone. It was like it, it was in smithereens. From the pressure of the right, water being Right, the, the, the front of it. I don't know the exact science of it but right. the front of it it leaked air got in and it and it, it they didn't even they didn't, it, it happened in a millisecond but blown to smithereens blown. not like big pieces no, I mean, right just there was barely dust. there was nothing left so there was this knocking coming from the area that happened not only was it knocking but it happened regularly as this said every 30 Half minutes and still today here we are two months later there is no explanation from the U.S. Coast Guard of what that knocking would be. And, coincidentally, the wreckage from the submersible was found in that area where the knocking was coming from. See, now, right away, my head goes to extraterrestrial activity somehow. But what, what do you, where does your brain go when I've, you hear something I've, like that? I have, I have nothing. I have no idea. So now, I've watched a lot more ancient aliens than you. That's why I automatically go so to So let that, me but. play. Now, now there is, after this... It was leaked online. Audio was supposedly leaked online of the banging, of the knocking. And I'll play that as well. Now, this was scraped off of line. Once it, got, once it was found, people started asking about this, and the U.S. Coast Guard said, that's not from us. That didn't come from us. So they wouldn't cop to that that's what it was. So this was also taken offline. But obviously people saw it, they downloaded it, they saved it, and you can find it now so and, you can hear what this knocking and was. And I'm not trying to be anti-government in this episode, but sometimes the government lies. Oh, sure. No, you know, nobody believes what they say. But here, here is, and I'm just the messenger here, right? Yeah. Here is the knocking. Don't knock shoot me either. Here is the knocking.
it's consistent. So it, the, an analogy or the, the noise I was thinking, it sounds like a flagpole on a windy day. You know, like the the rope banging against yeah. it in the metal, and it just and it's consistent. Like the wind is blowing at the same pace. That's so. Now again, the the U.S. Coast Guard is saying that 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 was not put out by them. They don't know what that banging was. And there have been like CNN did interviews with audio experts and stuff, and there was an audio an audio expert that says that he doesn't believe it's real because he thinks that the knocking wouldn't wouldn't be so clear. He think it, he thinks it would be more muffled. But interestingly enough, here we are again, two months later. One thing the U.S. Coast Guard has never said about that audio clip is that that that's not what we heard. They, they, never, they, they haven't said that. It, denied it. They've yeah. said all they've said that that didn't that didn't come from us. We didn't. Make and you that. know, and they're just casted off that it's you know who knows where that comes from. They never said to this day that that is not what they heard, and there is no explanation of what that was still today. So what is that? I have no idea what that is. Was oh, it a yeah. Tommy knocker? Probably not. But it's fun ag- to think about. Again, put yourself in the in the in a mind of a miner, and you're down there. It's fun to like think that. about because I'm not in that situation. Exactly. 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 You know, when you hear that knocking, consistent kind of consistent knocking like that, and this was happening every thirty minutes. Well, that's yeah. not something happening in nature, then, is it? Every aspect of it is consistent. That's that's the freaky part. So that. That's why my head goes to the extraterrestrial, but who knows? I mean, maybe it's stuff that exists right here on our planet that we just don't know about yet. So, you know, the notion of this being, so this this was a big deal in kind of paranormal circles and stuff the last few months. The notion being, because the, you know, the legend of Tommyknockers helping miners find what they're looking for, the notion of this was that this is the spirits of people who perished on the Titanic. Knocking, helping the searchers find the Titan, well, which that, was found right there. That does make some sense. So, food for thought. Now, in more recent times, there continued to be strangeness in the area of Mineral Point. The Basquebel Dial, April 9th, 1981, Quote, the city of Mineral Point had plenty to talk about last week when a police officer surprised a creature dressed like a vampire in the local cemetery. Said Officer John Pepper, who spotted the apparition while driving past the cemetery, quote, I got to within 15 feet and called out to him, but he didn't answer, just stood there and stared. Pepper described the subject as around six foot five with a white face and wearing a cape or a blanket. The creature took off running and Pepper chased him, but gave up when he dropped his hand radio and was outdistanced. Quote, I've never seen anyone that tall before in Mineral Point, said Pepper. I couldn't match his stride, and I'm six foot two. It's the weirdest thing that's ever happened to me. Pepper was actually out there investigating multiple reports, seeing a figure that, again, looking like a vampire haunting the Graceland Cemetery. Right. So as, as time went on, Pepper did more interviews about, about this. And he talked about it a lot more, and more information came out. And it's unclear of whether somebody called police because they saw someone in Grayson Cemetery or if Pepper saw it himself. Because the the article I just read said Pepper saw it himself while he was driving Once by. Once he was there, but, but multiple reports brought him out there in the first place. What I read is that he was going there to to basically 
squash these reports and just tell people what he saw and, and, and tell them that they're just making things up while it turns out he believed the story once he got there. So he sees something weird in the cemetery, Graceland Cemetery in Mineral Point, and he stops to check it out, right? It's, it's late March, it's cold, and there's, there's been a fresh snowfall that day. And he winds up confronting this, this creature, which he described as a very tall and slender with a white face, either painted white or extremely pale, and wearing all black with a flowing cape or a cloak. So this is where the vampire thing comes into play, right? I mean, he's describing Nosferatu, right? The first vampire movie. I mean, that's certainly what this sounds like. So Pepper calls out to him because he wants to question him, and the thing just takes off. Boom, starts running. And Pepper gives chase, but he can't keep up. And he watches as, as the creature comes up on a six-foot barbed wire fence. And he just glides right over it, like no problem at all. Now, Pepper goes back the next day with a couple of policemen friends. And they notice and they see the footprints on the inside of the cemetery coming up to the wall. But they see nothing on the other side. No steps, no evidence of anything having been there in the first place. Again, there was fresh snow that day. There's no footprints on the other side of the walls, like it never hit the ground. So now word gets out in Mineral Point here, right? And in no time flat, everybody's dressing up. Everybody's dressing up like this character, and they're going downtown, and they're scaring people, right? Shocking. (laughs) I mean... As twisted as I am, I don't hate the idea of can, doing that. Just fucking with people. White face, black cloak. You're right. It's it's kind of it's kind of funny. Now the story just kind of went away for a while. People just seemingly forgot about it. Pepper took some heat about it as a cop. There's a you know there's an official police report filed. This really did happen, right? Pepper sees this thing in a cemetery. It takes off. He doesn't know what it is. It looks weird, you know. But then that's that. Other than people kind of making fun of him. People dressing up later on in Mineral Point and scaring people. Um, it kind of goes away. And then later, 23 years later. So the story... Almost to the day. The initial one starts and it happens in 1981. And then 23 years later, again in March, but in 2004, police are called to an apartment building in Mineral Point of someone sitting in a tree who would jump out and scare people and was heckling passersby from... The tree, in his description, again, wearing dark clothes with a cape or a cloak with a white, very pale face. Police arrive, and again, this thing takes off, runs. And again, they they give chase, but they lose him because he's too fast, and then they follow his tracks. This time leaping over a 10-foot wall. Right. They follow him into an alley up, up to a cement wall 10 feet tall where his tracks stop. I mean, I've got ups, but maybe, you know, maybe like three or four centimeters, not quite 10 feet. And now again, this goes away. They don't see him again until four years later. Apparently, he shows up again. Now, this story reportedly comes from a a wire service out of Madison, like a newswire service. And it says that a young couple, 22-year-old Brandon Hines and his 19-year-old girlfriend, Jamie Marker, July 11, 2008, around 10 p.m. So they're doing some nighttime fishing off a jetty in Ludden Lake in Mineral Point. Now, this is how you know all these blogs that you read online are parroting off each other. Every retelling of this story uses the word jetty. jetty. I had to look it up because I'm like, what the hell is a jetty? Never heard of that before, no. right? 
I've never heard. It's a dock. Right. It's a dock. It's right. a structure coming from land that protrudes into the water. Now, maybe there is something that distinguishes it specifically as a jetty. I right. don't know. But it's a small pier, like you said, off the west shore of Ludden Lake where the couple was fishing. Oh, over and over, I said, like, right. am I reading the same article? I thought I opened a different link. Oh, it's... I and mean, there, there, nobody explains what it is. No. They just say jetty. Right. Like, like, and yeah. I, finally, I just looked up the glossary, like, jetty. Oh, that's what it is. Because, yeah, they don't even talk about... Like, it could have been, it could have been a guy's lap that they were jumping yeah. i mean like what is a jetty so anyways they're fishing off the dock on a july evening in 2008 nighttime and they begin to hear noises coming from underneath the dock like something is climbing along underneath it like a ladder or something and this would freak me out by the way i'm, yeah. I'm probably getting off that jetty right yeah. about now yeah. right i don't even know what a jetty is but yeah. i'm getting off the <laughs> right? damn thing so brandon thinks it's some kind of animal and he, uh, you know, he starts stomping on the dock to scare it away. And he hears this movement and water splashing. And he shines his flashlight at the noise. And he sees, quote, a figure with hair and very pale face pulling itself up on to the jetty. If this is real, that's scary as shit. Yeah, especially when you're fishing and it's dark. And- Hines and Marker stood in shock as the figure began to rise to its feet Marker turned and ran up the path toward Heinz's vehicle as Heinz kept his flashlight aimed on the figure. Quote, it was wearing some kind of Dracula-looking cape and suit, sort of, unquote. Marker claimed the same. Heinz threw his flashlight towards the figure and ran up the path after Marker, who was already in the vehicle with the doors locked, and they sped away. Just before he could reach them, so he was in chase, too. Well, just just to finish this story, after thorough investigation, not long after the incidents, officers found nobody. They noticed that the flashlight was the only thing missing, and the fishing gear that they had left behind was totally undisturbed. So it sounds like the, the vampire actually just stole the flashlight. And there's been no stories reported since July 2008. Some people believe it was nothing more than the escaped mental patient. Others believe it was the latest evidence of the Ridgeway Phantom. Now, the issue with this whole Mineral Point vampire story, which is extremely popular in online circles, right? The Mineral Point vampire is something that is very well known now. The issue is that only the original story, the Officer Pepper story, can be corroborated. Because it's in, it's, in several, it's in newspapers at the time. There's an official police report about it, right? We know that that incident really happened. We don't know what the creature was. Is it a dude trying to look like a vampire? Is it uh, Pepper himself thought it was somebody who, quote, needed help, unquote? He didn't think it was somebody screwing around. Uh, but he never saw him again, right? So the other two, in 2004 and 2008, there's no corroboration ever found. The article that came over the Newswire in Madison is unfounded. We don't know where it is. It's not in any newspaper, and there's been no wire service that claims to have it. Now, there's also been people who have tried to find the witnesses, the names, Brandon Hines and Jamie Marker, but people with those names have never been found in Mineral Point or in the area, or even using censuses. So people have looked for this. People have tried to corroborate these last two stories, and there's never been able any corroboration. Strange that a, a made-up story would have such intimate details. Though. That's kind of strange. 
Right. Well, and, and it, it, so it starts in 1981, it goes away, and now you're in the internet age in 2004 and 2008, right. and here it comes again. So who knows? And like you said, the fact that even the word jetty is repeated over and over, it's just it, it's just hearsay and rumors and gossip yes. just being yes. spread. It's people piggybacking on what's already what's already out there. So, it, you know, it's, it's a mystery. Why does somebody in 2004 or 2008 drudge something up that happened in 1981? Who knows? An interesting side note that I came across as I was reading, because supposedly he was known for haunting the Graceland Cemetery, even though there's not a lot of stories. That's that's what they speculated. This cemetery is actually famous for being the resting place of Betty White's third and final husband, Alan Luden, was supposedly the love of her life, and also the resting place of the great-grandparents of one Mr. Vincent Price, whose name everyone should be familiar with. Well, if you don't know who Vincent Price is... For no mortal can resist the evil of the thriller. (laughs) Coincidentally, the intro of our episodes... Scott calls that his Vincent Price voice, so he has ties to Does our sound very like episode. It? Does it sound oh, totally. <laughs> Especially the laugh that you do after you're done, because you're uh, creepy. Vincent that way. Price is like the godfather of. Well, that was the Michael Jackson American video, horror, for God's sake. Right? Anytime they want to do something creepy, his voice was involved. So very fitting for that graveyard that Vincent Price's grandmother, who was a Mineral Point uh, she was born native. There. Right, I, his, and I had no idea until we did this research. So great grandparents. That's just a cool fact. Are, are buried in that cemetery. And yeah, Alan Ludden. So he was a, uh, a very well-known television personality in the 1950s and 60s, and he hosted Password for years, many, many years, the game show Password. Um. So he was married to, to Betty White for 20 years up until his death in 1981. It was her third husband, and again, and from I, everything I've heard since, um, that was the love of her life. I don't think she ever was with anybody ever after. So during an interview on Larry King, uh, she was asked by Larry King, how come she never remarried after, after him? Right. And she said, quote, once you've had the best, who needs the rest? Right. So yeah, it was like all my ex-girlfriends say. Right, it was the love of her life, and she was also asked on Inside the Actor's Studio what she would like God to say to her if heaven exists, and she replied, "Quote, come on in, Betty. Here's Alan." Unquote. So yeah, That's this is, sweet. and he's buried here with his family, and she, I'm sure, is buried in LA. She's somewhere. not buried yeah. here. Yeah, I don't know exactly yeah. where, but so yeah, kind of a, an interesting cemetery in. Mineral Point. Just another layer to the whole Mineral Point legend. All right, so Mineral Point, you know, another example of why, you know, I believe, and I've said this many times, that this is the most unique state in the country. Just a tiny little, one tiny little town has so much going on. It's it's amazing. And whether, and as we've mentioned in other episodes, whether they're based on complete reality or not, it's part of the folklore and it's part of the history and it's interesting and it, it it gives us the character and the and the deep background that we have as Wisconsinites and it's I think it's amazing whether it's true or not. It's the remnants of the thread that that makes us who we are. You know, like in, in, you know, we need to embrace these stories. It doesn't mean you believe them. 
You don't have to believe there's a vampire running around in, in Mineral Point or there's Tommyknockers living underground, you know, but we need to continue telling these stories because well, this is what they, connects us to our past. And Yeah, right. I mean, from, from the motherland and, you know, from our European ancestors and stuff, they come as far back from as, as those times. So, like you said, it, we need to continue to spread these stories and make it part of our, of our culture and history. America is changing, obviously, right? Wisconsin is ever-changing, and we're, we're not just one culture. We're a multitude of cultures. We're many, many cultures. And that will continue, and more stories and legends will be told, and they'll continue to grow. And that'll also make it easier for other legends to kind of get lost in the shuffle and eventually be forgotten. And we don't want that to happen. You know, so that's why Mickey and I will continue to do at least our part with this podcast to see that that doesn't happen too soon. Amen, brother.